0: And I kept rolling that around in my head and rolling it around in my head. It took me. It took
1: me. But why would these beings be doing this to
0: human beings if well, it's true? Let me let me give you some possibilities. A lot of physicists
2: now believe that there is no objective reality. You can never see
0: anything except directly. You can only you can only interpret your own perceptions. Touch, taste, feel, sight, smell. Those are all inside us. The suggestion is that they have been here for a long time and have affected our world. You know, the truth is, we don't know a darn thing about what this actually is.
2: Secrets, cover-ups, and strange phenomena.
1: UFOs and ideas that challenge reality itself. All these mysteries, all this time. Are we ever gonna get to the bottom of these?
2: My name is George Knapp. I dig into news stories that others can't or won't.
1: I'm Jeremy Corbell, and for some reason people tell me things they probably shouldn't. And this is Weapon Weaponized.
2: This is weaponized. It's been 36 years since the book Communion exploded into the public consciousness. It's spent Six months atop the bestseller list. It sold millions of copies. Still sells uh, many copies. It's inspired so many other uh, similar books by other artists and experiencers. It became a, a a hit movie. And the guy who wrote it is our guest today, Whitley Strieber. Whitley, great to see you. It's a pleasure to be here, George. Good to see you, Whitley. Yeah, Good to see you too. We, we want to talk about your latest book, Them. Um, but it, there's a journey because it's sort of the, the new book is kind of a full circle for you in yeah. returning to the uh, communications you had from the public after communion came out. I mean, this thing landed like an atomic bomb. Right. Can you share with us what it was like to be riding that wave back in 1987?
0: Well, first, I had no idea there would be a wave. We, Bud Hopkins and I, figured there were about maybe 50 or 100 people who had had these experiences. We did not know the truth that there was, it was a a massive undercurrent in the society. And I came to it as a, a novelist, a fiction writer. And suddenly here I am going out and saying something very like one of my horror novels actually happened to me. And worse for me personally, Back in Texas, where I came from, I have a reputation for being skilled at fooling people and playing pranks. <laughs> so you know, the I mean, it's just the last person you would think could could do this or should be called on to do this in a way. But at the same time, as we'll see over the course of the discussion, there's been an enormous effort on the part of this presence, and that's mostly what I'm going to call it. Sometimes the visitors, not necessarily aliens, because that I just don't I think I don't think we know enough about it to to make it so definite. So in any case, it makes an effort to enable people to to, to make their own decisions. If they had, for example, had Carl Sagan instead of me, or another prominent scientist or a religious leader, or something you could not, someone you could not doubt then people would be forced to believe it. But with me, they could could really take their choice. And I mean, my friends in Texas were just, there wasn't one of them. They said, you know, Whitley, this is just the worst. This is your worst, the most outrageous joke you've ever played. And I'm saying, it's not a joke. And it happened. And this is still the bottom line. Something happened to me and to, it turns out,
2: millions of other people. The image on the cover connected to people all over the planet in a ways that surprised you and everyone else. It spoke to them because there was a, a hint of recognition for a lot of people who had not confronted this before. It was a trigger. The, that, that image is the, is,
0: the, the, is the initiating moment of contact between us and whatever this other presence is. That was what started it. And I had not the faintest idea anything like that would happen. Gosh, I wish I could say, well, you know, uh, the visitors and I were blah, blah, and, you know, I knew just what would... No, not even close. I was just sitting there with the artist, uh, Ted Jacobs, trying to get an image that reflected the way it felt to look into those eyes. And it, it, it worked. And then it was just, Thousands and thousands. If you go down to Rice University now and, and you look through those letters, there's thousands of them there in the archives of the impossible. Uh, you see letter after letter saying that the face made me realize that what had happened to me was real. And it was amazing. Amazing, that trigger. The it face hangs on my wall in my, my office. I look at it every, every day and I think to myself, who are you? The original, yeah,
1: yeah. That that it's so interesting. So that the the cards were stacked against you in your profession and and oh, and, absolutely. And so you're kind of like a a perfect message, imperfect messenger is kind of the the thing exactly. And and I will attest to the idea that seeing that image is now something that people, it's so recognizable, this idea of like the alien gray or or whatever you'd call it, that image of that being on your book. I mean, I remember seeing it as, as as a younger person. And now so many people without even having seen or read your book have had these encounters. And back then when you say Rice University, you're talking about how many letters did people
0: write you back then that you have now donated to Rice University? Well, this is all Anne, my wife Ann's doing. Uh, about two weeks after communion came out, remember this is before there were, there was no email at, at all. It was all physical. Uh, the postman rang the doorbell and we opened the door and the guy has this big bag, canvas bag full of letters. And he says, "We got a lot of mail for you today, and uh, we can't. I can't leave the bag, but I'm going to leave. I have to leave the letters." So he pours them out on the living room floor. And we think, "What the hell is this? Is all about that the book communion?" And then the publisher had called and said, "It's going to be a bestseller. It's really doing well." Well, that was the start. It stu- it became every day. They would come. Sometimes two or three postmen. The letters pile was, you know, three or four feet high. And I said, Ann, what are we going to do? We can't leave this as a fire hazard, among other things. I mean, we can't have our entire living room filled with letters. I don't know what to do. We, we got to figure out some way to throw them out. But it's the same time we've got to preserve these people's confidentiality. She says, throw them out. I'm not going to throw them out. I'm going to read them. I said, read them. Look at that pile. And it gets bigger every day. She said, well, you might not be able to read them, but I can, and I'm going to. And she got a letter opener, and she started flipping them open. Two days later, three days later, she says, you know, I'm going to need a secretary. And I said, okay, well, we'll call Manpower. And she says, no, no, I'll find the secretary in the letters. And I thought, what an unexpected and interesting approach. And not 10 minutes later, she comes in, and she says, look at this letter. And I look at the letter and it's this letter from this lady It says she's a singer and a, uh, an actress and stuff. And I said, well, it says here she's a singer and she's an actress. She said, Ann says, but she lives down the street. And that's not, you ever heard of her? I said, no. She said, well, if she might, if she's a wannabe singer and actress then, isn't she? So therefore that's not how she makes her living. Look at that handwriting, that's a professional's hand. I'm calling her because I think she's a secretary. She was a secretary. She remained Anne's secretary for the next 15 years at Laurie Burns. And together, they created this catalog. Anne cataloged it. She read every letter. She put the letters with a a complex narrative in one stack. The letters just that were saying, this was wonderful, thank you for writing, or you're an idiot, or all those in another stack. Uh, And uh, the stack that she saved is about 35,000 letters. And I think maybe all of them, and certainly most of them are at Rice.
2: Wow. These events that happened to you that are detailed in communion, they started this at the cabin that you had in upstate New York. You did not know at the time that those things were unfolding that you had probably had a lifetime of experiences. I mean, maybe it was communicating with Bud Hopkins about what it means and how to fit it into a category that you developed understanding of. Can you explain
1: Who's Bud Hopkins for people that don't know about this? A lot of people are watching this kind of thing, but who's Bud Hopkins? That's an Bud important Hopkins point.
2: was a very talented artist. Uh, that This topic was sort of thrust upon him. Yeah, uh, he had he wrote an a experience. Book. Yeah, he had an experience. It was called Missing Time. He wrote a book called Missing Time that established uh, a lot of what we now understand about the experience with visitors. Whitley's uh, experiences expanded it exponentially. But
0: Yeah, in fact, he got pissed off at me because uh, some... He felt like my book had overshadowed his and it shouldn't have been published at the same time. I had, and he thought I had engineered that. In fact, I hadn't, I didn't, I, I, I had no control over it whatsoever. And unfortunately, something was going on with the publisher. They were, they were getting pushback from somewhere and they decided to put the book out just to send books to the bookstores without any, any build-up or explanation. And so all these books arrived all over the country uh, unexpectedly in the bookstores. But Bud thought I had done it and I had done it to, uh, to preempt his book Intruders. And he was furious and it ruined our relationship and it was tragic because he was such a wonderful man and such a good man and so effective at doing something that nobody else ever did before or ever thought was possible. But his dignity and his decency and his kindness and his dedication uh, helped me and many other people. I think I might have committed suicide if it hadn't been for both. I I think he saved my life.
2: You're having these experiences and then you uh, interact with him and he sort of gives you some framework for understanding it.
0: Yeah. Well, when I first met him, I thought he was a complete idiot (laughs) because, I mean, uh, I, I you know, I was not in this space at all. Uh, I was, I I had been interested in flying saucers when I was a little boy, because it was the fifties and they were all over the news all the time. And any little boy is going to be interested. Plus one of our neighbors was witness to a big Le- uh, incident called the Level Texas UFO incident. And he was one of the people whose car was stopped on the roadside by the thing. And, see saw it and everything. So it was a big, you know, we were interested, all right. I, I did not, I apparently had a lot of, I wrote a whole book about possible interactions and encounters as a child called this Secret School. But by the time my 40s rolled around, I had completely forgotten any trace of that. I hadn't thought about flying saucers since I was about 15. And uh, before that, maybe. And all of a sudden I'm thinking about flying saucers again because I was apparently ended up in one, which, but at first, no, I mean that idea didn't actually cross my mind until I described my memories to my doctor. And he said, Whitley, it sounds like you're take you're telling me you were taken aboard a flying saucer by little men. And I thought, Oh my God, I'm going crazy. And this big thing, I mean, I, I felt like it was so real that if it happened again, what if it happens again? I'm not getting out of that. That's that's an absolutely impenetrable psychosis is what I feared. And I started, I got, I, what I didn't know was I was experiencing a lot of traumatic stress. And I tried to get Anne to divorce me. I, we fought. i I tried to push her away. I didn't want to tell her that I thought I had gone insane. I I was, it was just a disastrous time, but my whole life imploded in in the months after December of 1985 in January and into February. And then I happened to read a book called science and the UFOs that had been given to me by my brother for Christmas by Jenny Randalls. And, um, you know, my brother was into that sort of thing, and I always thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And you know, we we always, we don't try, but we, we do try to give each other good presents. We always get to give each other horrible presents. Um, I once gave him, he's fascinated by gorillas. I once gave him a gorilla suit, not knowing it was made of cat hair. And all the cat hair got sucked up into his car air conditioner while he tried to go over to a friend's house wearing it. But well, that's the sort of thing we do. So I had this book, Science and the UFOs. I'm Richard I open it, I see this, you know, another mad gift. But I read it because I did, I mean, the doctor had said UFOs. And in the back of the book, Bud is mentioned. So I called him, went to see him. And um, finally ended up with a realization that there was no other explanation that fit. All the medical explanations, everything had not panned out. The only explanation that it had panned out was that I was hardly sit down because I'd been raped and the doctor had diagnosed that and I had this hole in the side of my head that was uh, beginning to heal by then but it had been a, a very nasty little wound and I thought to myself, physical injuries, memory is real. I'm going to go see this guy. And I, I, then I said to A dear friend of mine, Timothy Greenfield Saunders, who takes all the pictures, a wonderful, brilliant photographer, and he takes all my pictures, thank God. Anyway, Timothy, I said, told the whole story to Timothy, and he says, I said, I don't know how to tell Anne. And I said, he says, well, just tell her. She'll roll with it. Anne knows you. She's used to you. She'll roll with it. So I sit down with her and she's starting to tear up because she thinks, as she said later, I thought we were going to say we need to separate. And instead I tell her this story about being taken aboard flying saucer by little men. And she looks at me and she says, oh, thank God, oh, yeah. I thought you were going crazy. <laughs> she also, she remembered it differently. She said, she remembers this saying, Oh, thank God, I, 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 now I don't have to get a divorce. Um, but I was afraid that, you know, I'd been one kind of pushing to take it splits apart because the reason was if she had me as a husband and I was in, in a mental institution, she couldn't remarry, she couldn't get insurance, and she had no means of support and a
2: little boy to raise. That was why I was trying to get rid of her. Did, did I read that you were drinking in those days, sort of as a, as a coping mechanism yeah, or to be able I, to I go I to did, sleep? I, or? I, I
0: drank, I started, not, not to the point of getting drunk. I had been there and done that in college. Uh, I, I will admit, frankly, that my college years were wonderful fun. And I cannot ever uh, say to any kid who raises hell in college, that, oh my, you shouldn't do that (laughs) because I did it all. Where did you go to college? Uh, Well, I started out at St. John's College in Maryland, which was a very serious, great books college. And it was a wonderful place. However, I wanted not just a good school, but I wanted fun. And I thought, well, there's a party school 70 miles from my hometown, uh, University of Texas. All my friends are there. They're having a great time and getting good educations as well. I'm going there and I moved. And so I went to UT and I had a great time. I got a good education and I had a hell of a lot of fun. Um, Anyway, uh, after the events, I began to drink. I began to like uh, to medicate myself with alcohol because I was so, to be honest with you, I was so goddamn scared. I was scared. You can't you can't know until you've been with in situation like that what it is to be really scared. Because these entities were alive, moving around fast, some of them very fast. And uh, you moved. This instant, they, they raped me, they gave me an erection by using uh, a device that was used actually in uh, animal husbandry, it still is used in animal husbandry, but in uh, those days before Viagra or anything, it was used for men who were having trouble getting, getting it up, and it, it creates an electrical current that stimulates the nerve that causes an erection, and you can hear me on the hypnosis tape saying, yeah, I have an erection. Where did that come from? Because let's face it, there wasn't anybody in that room who would have inspired an erection <laughs> in me or anyone. So uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a great one. <laughs> it's, the, it's the truth. I mean, it was, not a, it was not an erection-oriented situation in any way at all. And there it was. And then they took semen out of me. They took my semen. And I get rolling that around in my head and rolling it around in my head. It took me. It took me. What'd they do with me?
2: You know, it's one thing to read that book, and it's scary as hell. It's another thing to think that it really was happening to you. These things are around. They're playing mind games with you. They're coming in. They're taking you out, taking you somewhere else against your will, and it all turns out to be real. People like to say, we're ready for the truth. Well, yeah, maybe and maybe not, you know, because that stuff's scary.
0: I think we're right on the edge of the truth coming out. I think we're very close. And it is going to be hard it, because if, just the little bit I've seen so far, people are already going crazy. They're bringing their religions in and their their beliefs. And uh, there are people uh, with these absolute certainties, you know, it's the such and such group and this and that. You know the truth is, we don't know a darn thing about what this actually is yet. And in our excuse me, in our context, it might be very hard for us to focus this in a way that makes sense to the human mind. Uh, I think we can focus it to a degree, because a lot of us have. I mean, I have the experiencer group has. And you know, people have different ways of dealing with it, but what it is in an absolutely objective and sort of fundamentally factual way, that might be real hard to get to. I'm I'm curious, like, you know,
1: gonna be honest, knowing you is different, you know, kind of hearing about this. A lot of people explain odd, bizarre things that occur to them you have to have the majority of people saying, Whitley, you're making this up, this didn't happen. You're You're a novelist. You're a novelist, you got other traumas, you're filling in the voids, you're just trying to make more movies. This is what people throughout probably your whole time talking about this. So, So my question is, I I have no idea. You're telling us something. How do you deal with that, though? If what you're saying happened to you, how do you deal with the perception of the world? You know, some people embrace it because they've had similar experiences and they're like, oh, thank God he's, he's telling what happened. How do you deal
0: with people that think this is total horseshit? Well, there's basically there's three groups of people around. One is the people who've had the experience. Two is the vast, vast majority of people who've never heard of it don't care about it if they have heard of it. And then there's another small group of people who want to say it's bullshit, and you're a liar. And I've been dealing with them all my life, and I don't—I'm I, not going to say that—that that, uh, oh, I you know they're they're wrong, et cetera, because they may not be wrong. I don't have a baseline in fact in this. Only two, three things, the, the, the physical things, what happened to me here on the side of my head, what happened to me below when I was raped and it left scars that could be diagnosed, and the implant in my ear, which came in in 1989, those three things are physical. And the three of them together in my mind indicate something is not right. That there is something, there is somewhere a baseline. There is a physical reality here, but I don't know what it is. Now, as far as dealing with these people, I can't. I would never say to someone who says this is you—you you are making a mistake. I would never say they were wrong because I can't prove it.
1: Yeah. So you, you don't—you don't blame uh, or, or feel kind of anything to the people that that in their position they're like this is horseshit. You you let them. Uh, you're saying I can't prove this stuff, and right. so you don't blame them for having that kind of resistance Not or at attitude. All. Yeah,
0: I don't see why I should. Right. Uh, b- but I do get pissed off when they bully me. And oh I've yeah. I've been bullied a lot, and I don't like that. Uh, I I I think it's wrong. Do you throw punches sometimes? I can throw a punch, <laughs> believe me, but I have never done that. I've <laughs> yeah, done that yeah, a few yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit, uh, it gets annoying, right? When you're doing um, yeah. That. Well. If you've been raped and there's people making it into a joke, that's about as nasty as a human being gets and and I've endured that for thirty years south park south Park exactly what's that tell me about that well south park's south park's uh premiere episode is about me yeah it's and they you know it is literally about a rectal probe and it's a and you know the first mention of my rape in communion is the use of the word rape. And then I, under hypnosis, I call it a rectal probe. And they seized on that on purpose. And they did it to make me into a laughing stock. And they did that because they thought the whole thing was bullshit and I deserved to be laughed at. That's why they did it. Not knowing that they were basically bullying the hell out of a rape victim. And I think now more and more people are realizing that yeah, These things do happen to people because we're talking about me right now. But what about the women who lost fetuses and eggs? There's plenty of those out there. And the other men who had semen taken from them, that happened to them too. Why do you think, okay,
1: so let's just... Make the assumption here that this is happening physically, tangibly. Let's just go. I'm going to start from right there. Why do you think that's being done? In your
0: opinion, what what would be the purpose of that? Well, I get into that in some depth in them, and also I believe in the previous book. A New yeah, but World. I got you right here, right now. I want to hear your All opinion. Don't worry. I'm 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 trying to frame it here. Sure, but, sure. Uh, no, I'm not going to just say it's in the book. Believe me, that's not yeah. why I'm here. Anyway, <laughs> Thank you. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I think that that they, that the uh, that the, they have to you know you have to you have to let people go where they want to go, they, you know where they need to go. But why would these beings be doing this to human beings? if well, it's true, doing it to us. Uh, let me let me give you some possibilities. One. They are making a sort of seed bank of mankind. Uh that that would follow from the fact that they've warned every abductee they've gotten a hold of practically that the planet is in peril. And if, you know, if you live in New York or Toronto right now, you would definitely agree with that. As we, we speak, the smoke from the hundreds of Canadian fires is just terrible. Uh the um So maybe they're expecting us to go extinct and they're making a seed bank, not only of us, but I would presume of other other creatures on this planet. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that they're breeding human beings in their own context in hopes of finding some uh, 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 bridge between the two worlds. Hybrid. Uh, Well, uh, hybrid is another story because uh, I'm talking about just breeding human beings, right. but if they are also injecting genetic material of another species or something, that's way beyond what we can do. But not that far. And I do have some evidence in my own life that that might have happened. I might have actually been witness to that. So uh, that could be part of it too. But you know, if 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 we turn it around and we look at our world. It's the kind of thing we do to animals all the time, routinely. And so maybe they looked at our world and said to themselves, well, they do it to animals. So they're an animal, so we'll do it to them. You know, maybe they won't care.
1: What's the difference? Just because I I don't really know. And I've heard there's contactees, abductees, and experiencers. What's the difference between those three
0: so people know? Well, I don't think there's too much difference between experiencers and Uh, abductees. A lot of experiencers are abductees. I would consider myself to be both. Uh, And an experiencer is someone who has ongoing experiences with the visitors, which I do. And an abductee is someone who basically started out generally with being abducted, which I did. And quite a few people like in the experiencers group, I think, had the same experience. That as well. A contactee is not necessarily someone who has had a physical encounter, and a lot of them tend to be people in the spiritual community, and you know they have a they have a much more positive attitude toward the whole thing than those of us who've been dragged by out into the night and raped. Uh, uh, you know, there that 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 movement started back in the early fifties with George Adamski and uh, all those other fellows. Uh, going out and basically making money off of what I assume were pretty much tall stories. I think that my wife used to say that these are people who had something happen. Maybe they saw a UFO. Maybe they had a brief close encounter or something, or maybe a bigger close encounter. And they can't connect the dots. They can't figure it out. And so they connect the dots themselves and they basically build a fantasy. I think that's the source of a lot of folklore. And in this field, there is a lot of folklore. By folklore, I mean, not necessarily things people are simply making up. Not all folklore is completely fictional. A lot of folklore comes when people have a a, a perception that they can't understand, and they fit it into the context of whatever their culture has at the time. Like Jacques Vallée's book, Passport to Magonia takes that back a thousand years or more, and you can look at, as at time passes, each generation it is looking at uh, this experience, which is essentially the same experience in the context of its own belief systems and understanding of the world.
2: Today's space aliens were elves and pixies and fairies a thousand exactly. years ago. Yeah, or not a thousand, 200 years ago. Um, you know, I don't know that there's anybody in the world who's has the um, the level of understanding with these beings, whoever they are, as you, because, you know, there are other people who've had a lifetime of experiences, but not many who've thought about it, dove into it, uh, and analyzed it as much as you. The, the, the story's told in communion. You know, the context of that, that the public got out of it, is these are space aliens here abducting us. They come from other planets and interact. In that book, you were careful to call them visitors. You didn't call yeah. them aliens or ETs, and in them, your latest book, you sort of come full circle, go back to the letters that were written about communion to try to understand who they are, why they're here. Um, Give us your current understanding of who they are and where they're from. Are they visitors or are are we the newcomers? Well, it could be part of both. Uh,
0: The the suggestion is that they have been here for a long time and have affected our world at times. They've kind of touched it. And an example would be Ezekiel's wheel, uh, where he has an experience that he describes in the time in which he makes his descriptions. You You couldn't make a thing like that up because what he was seeing was completely unknown to his culture. He could not have known anything like that ever. Because it was technological in nature, in yeah, the exactly. He's talking about a technological device that we can now understand. So we assu- we have to assume that he that he was something was inject being injected into the Middle Eastern cultures at the time by somebody, and Ezekiel had an, an, a direct encounter with it, which he recorded uh, in in in, the, in in his own cultural's uh, culture's way. Uh, I like think UFOs are described as uh,
1: shields on fire in the sky by right. the Romans. So that's a way to describe something that is
0: not within your context, is what you're saying? Well, there's a wonderful description of the, uh, of an out-of-context situation in, in, in Jock's book, in Passport to Magonia, in, I believe, the, in 14th century Japan, there were a lot of, there were basically there was a UFO wave going on a UFO flap, as they now call them. And people were seeing these things. And the emperor became very irritated. And in those days, you know, irritated emperor heads are liable to roll at any moment. And he demanded of his astronomers to tell him what the hell these things were. And they came up with the most beautifully poetic answer. It is the first piece of debunking known to man. They explained it as the wind making the stars sway. Wow! <laughs> and they kept their heads. So, uh, but they're they're part of us and part of our world. And this is something. Unfortunately, I think that the the whole uh, the whole way the culture has been dis- the, the, our our vision of this has been distorted by secrecy and by assumptions being made in 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 the media that it's aliens from another planet if this does f- flow out into the into common knowledge in some way if the if the, they there's some kind of higher level official admission of the the presence of craft and and bodies for example which i think could could be on the way, uh, then the public will conclude that these are aliens from another planet. And we're going to get into crazy hour very quickly. I think it's unfortunate, but I think it's exactly what will happen. And uh, those of us who are you guys, uh, who are communicators, experts in this field, people like me and the other experiences are gonna just have to make ourselves heard to say, hey, yeah, you've got bodies, you've got craft, but boy, do you need to keep this in question. I'll give you one, f- oh, go ahead. Yeah, wh- wh- why, like, so if, if what,
1: what do you mean we'll go into crazy, like, so if we have craft and, and we have bodies and the craft appear to be able to travel amongst the stars and if that is what's ended up revealed, just hypothetically,
0: what is your warning here? What well, is your warning is this? What if they don't travel among the stars? What if there's something else about these things that we don't yet understand? I'll give you an example of, what I mean, uh, one of the things that has been out there is that some of the materials that were gathered, that that have been gathered, have been found, I believe, if I'm not correct, it might be Jacques Vallée and Gary Nolan who did this. Yeah, the isotopic ratios. The isotopic ratios, yeah. Okay. Now, the materials don't, I mean, I've had these things in my hands and they don't, and not the ones they had, but some others uh they're not uh, they're not in any way you wouldn't know there was any unusual isotopic ratios and in fact the metal can be it could be theoretically fabricated and used because the different isotopic ratios don't change its properties uh uh those isotopic ratios can't form naturally anywhere in this universe, not just on Earth, but anywhere. So they, I, were, they were made, they were fabricated. In a universe which has a different set of
1: isotopes. Or you could construct very easily, if you have the technology, different isotopic ratios. Not easily,
0: it. no. It not, ta- not easily for us. It, it, well, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to do it unless, unless, you can, uh, unless there's some other way that we don't know about. We don't have the, no one is doing this in the lab to fool people. Let me put it that way. But why do it? Unless there is some process that requires it that we don't yet understand. But there has recently been an article, (coughs) rather a paper, and I can't cite it from memory about a mirror universe that might exist really essentially right here. And I've had some experiences with something that might suggest that as well as I detailed in uh, A New World where I was seeing into what appeared to be another universe on the Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota in I believe in the summer of 2018. And it was a quite incredible experience. And uh, if there is a mirror universe and they can co- cross over, they might be bringing devices that are, that are manufactured in their w- universe that has different isotopes.
2: You wrote in, in uh, you know, in Communion, um, when you wrote it, the multiverse, scientists might've thought about it, parallel realities, people had thought about it, but the public, it wasn't widely known. After your book came out, uh, those concepts are more widely known among even those of us who are not scientists, The idea that there are parallel realities, alternate universes, is not that far-fetched anymore. You know, Jacques Vallée had said the first interview I ever did with him, he said, look, I'm going to be really disappointed if it turns out the answer to the mystery is these are people coming here from other planets. Because if they can control space-time, they can be from other planets, other dimensions, other realities, um, you know, time travelers, all the above. Well, the time traveler thing is a very interesting
0: possibility, too because I, I, we do know that time tr- moves in both directions and there's no bar, real bar to moving through time. There might be, however, <coughs> the, the grandfather paradox might mean that you have the very little ability to alter your own past. Unless you appear in your own past, in some form that never existed at all. And if that's the case, then these little beings with the big heads are a disguise of people from the future who are trying to change our past, their own past, trying to alter their past for some reason that we don't know. And they are using this to give themselves more more latitude of uh, more of an ability to act in our
2: reality in the past in their own past. Do we know what they really look like? I mean, you've encountered them up close and personal. Some of them looking different from the other ones. Yeah, you know, we also know about it. they they appear to us as owls in our head or other kinds of creatures. Oh, very good at that.
0: They, one thing that I found that that the brain will if it if it gets if you, one of the things that we do when we're born is we start to put the world together in our brains. The brain always does it pretty much the same way. And at first the baby is com- a completely, he doesn't have any, any, uh, oh, any way to put anything together. But that changes rather quickly because this brain is in an environment and it is is trying, begins to try to make sense of that environment. And... Sooner or later, uh, a whole the 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 world generates meaning for the the baby, and by the time he's four or five, he or she can see a tree and identify all this whole world, and that grows and grows over the lifespan. Uh, but if something enters that. After the baby has already established its reality, something penetrates into that reality that the mind can't find anywhere in its memory, then that gets very dicey as to what it's going to see. Uh, when when you, something is coming into your eyes, when you're looking at something or any perception, m- most of your brain activity involves the catalog. It is looking for memories to make sense of what it's seeing. This is constant and instantaneous. It's going on in all of our brains right now. and But if something came into this that shouldn't be here, we might see it in very different ways. We might not see it at all.
2: A lot of physicists now believe that there is no objective reality. You know, we, what we see as reality is the result of evolution that our senses have developed over eons so that we can navigate through this, this reality, but that reality itself is based on the observer that,
0: um, well, you can never, you can never see anything except directly. You can only, you can only interpret your own perceptions, touch, taste, feel, sight, smell. Those are all inside us. So, uh, the, uh, uh, the people who argue that the universe is a is essentially a mental thing have to be partly right, at least partly right because we can never experience anything directly it's all indirect through the perception through the body, through the senses you 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 interpret what your senses tell you is there you don't see it directly and that that would be why the the visitors are very skilled i think at at handling, at manipulating that. And they can, uh, one of the editors at William Morrow and Company encountered two of them in in a bookstore in Manhattan. And uh, they were, you know, they were dressed in overcoats and hats, but they had those great big black eyes and, scared the hell out of them. They were reading the book, flipping through the book and laughing, of course.
2: It's a story you tell in them, I do tell a, it's new true. book. So, you know, you went back to the beginning. You looked at the letters that had been written about communion. Right. You went to Rice, looked through these and tried to, to sort of look at the whole story through the eyes of, of people who'd read your book and had experiences. And I think you, there's a quote from you in the book where you say, there was widespread criticism of communion at every level of society But there was only one group of critics that really uh, scared me, the visitors themselves. Meaning you write about the visitors were in the book, reading, I mean, in the bookstore, reading Communion.
0: Right. Well, my editor calls me up and he says, Whitley, I have good news and bad news. (laughs) I said, "Uh, well, uh, what's the bad news? Of course, you always ask for the bad news first. You want to get it out. And the bad news was rather surprising. He said, well, the visitors think your book is a joke. (laughs) I said, Jim, what are you talking about? He said, well, that's the good news. We all believe you now. I said, what are you talking about, man? He says, well, Bruce Lee, not the Bruce Lee, but the other Bruce Lee, he was uh, uh, history, an editor of uh, military history at William Morrow, uh, walked into a bookstore the other day. This is right when the book was just coming out. It was like the first week. And he... uh, Two of those people, your people, he said, they always call them my people. <laughs> anyway, your people were in there. So what people? He said, the little people with the great big eyes were reading your book. I thought, I thought. holy guacamole, now what? I said, okay, tell me more. And he says, well, they were reading your book. They were paging through it very quickly and they were laughing and saying that it didn't happen. This didn't happen and that didn't happen. I said, What? you're kidding. He says, no, I'm not kidding. Bruce is not a liar. He's telling it straight. And I thought to myself, this is a practical joke. I've never, I'd never played any practical jokes on the people at William Morrow and company though. So I, I had the hope that it was just a mistake. So I talked to Bruce Lee and he describes these people, the little beings perfectly. They were about five feet tall and they were in hats and coats and They definitely had the big eyes. And basically when they stopped and looked at him, they scared the hell out of him and he left the store. Uh, And so I thought, oh, hell. Now I know that the visitors think my book's bullshit. (laughs) What am I going to do about that? And so I say to Bruce, did they say anything at all about like which parts were... (laughs) No, he said, I just they just were laughing and saying this wasn't true and that wasn't true. They were paging through it too fast for me to keep up with it. I said, well, what did you do? He says, I left. I took, got my wife and we left. So I thought to myself, this has to be a practical joke. It has to be. It can't be real. And it sounds like a comedy, man. It does sound like exactly. A comedy. Little did I know that it was a practical joke. But now that I know the visitors a little better, I am aware of the fact that they play jokes. They're very jokey and, and and often in a fairly ominous and unfunny way, but at times it can be fairly funny. And this was fairly funny in any case. Um, so they got a sense of humor. Is what they you're have just... a sense of humor. Okay. Right. Yeah. In any case, I got a, this uh, uh, lie detector guy uh, who did lie detector work for the police department and he, he had, he had been forced to pass me on a lie detector test. And he really wanted to get. I said, so I called him and I said to him, there's this guy, Bruce Lee, this from the publisher. He's got to be lying. This has got to be a joke. I want you to do a test on him. And he says, sure, I'll be glad to you come. So Bruce goes down. He, t- t- and he passes the test. and He says, you know, Whitley, that guy is a sadist. I mean, you know, he really beat me up. First, it took took over an hour, and second, he's yelling at me and going on. and I thought he's tr- I was trying to break him. He was trying to get him to force him to 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 break him. And um, Bruce was telling the truth. So you,
1: even though you've had all of these extraordinary experiences that you relay in your books, you even thought that this guy. Bruce Lee, not the Bruce Lee, was lying
0: about this. You sent a polygraph guy to go test him? I got it. I got him to go down and get a polygraph. Okay. Not right. I did. Because I, I was just not going to believe. And he was willing to do it too. That's so bizarre. And the fact bizarre. that he was, Ann said, Bruce is willing to, to do that. I, she said, then it happened. And I said, I guess it did happen. And uh, the polygraph guy agreed. It, you know, Bruce was not lying. And, you know, after communion came out, there was constant stories being, I guess, flowing out from the intelligence community. who are good at dropping stories where they want them dropped that, you know, lie detectors don't work. And that's why they're not used in court and et cetera and so forth. What they didn't say, of course, is that most, most people in sensitive positions take lie detector tests every few months. Yeah. And they do that because they do work in the, in the hands of a good operator. They do work. They work very well. And uh that's why the operator that took that, that did that test on me, and on bruce was he was one of the best, so uh, uh he so it, 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 Bruce told the truth the damnedest thing I mean <laughs> but here's the we sort of blacked into this because we were talking about the brain and the way it rejects things that. I think that if they had wanted to, they could have gone into that bookstore and no one, including Bruce Lee, would have seen them. I think they wanted him to see them because then they left and they, he saw them walking off down the street and nobody batted an eye. Nobody batted an eye.
2: You write in, in Them, uh, your latest book, uh, there's a line in there, they mean us no harm. I don't know if that's you writing that or that's one of the witnesses. That's one of the witnesses. That's a witness. You no, think you're that, talking that is- to a guy that got... Roughed up a good bit. I'm not so sure I would say that myself. Um, You write that they are not angels; they're not demons. So I wonder, what are they? Are they beings? Are they biological robots? Are they? uh, Do we don't really get to see the real them? I ask in this context. A lot of the people who call themselves experiencers now are they're taking polls that say overall it's a pretty positive experience. It really changed my life for the better. Whereas from the communion days. The experiences were not viewed in a positive uh, light. No.
0: Well, you know, my experience, my relationship with them evolved over the years a lot. I, um, After Ben and I realized that this was real, that there somebody was there and they weren't human, I decided, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to try to expand my contact. This was after I'd Pretty much while I was writing communion, and right after. Anyway, how would I do that? Well, I decided what I would do is I would wait until late at night and walk back to the place where I thought it had happened, and I would just do that night after night as an indication of my willingness to re-engage. So I said to Anne, uh, "Why don't we do this? We'll go. We'll go down to the place to." Where the circle where it happened late at night and just sit there and just think about wanting to reconnect and see if it works. She said, but there's one little thing that's wrong with what you said. It's the word we, you, you are the one who this happened to you go down there at night. And the first night I tried to, I got to the edge of the yard and I literally could not make my legs work. I could not walk farther. I had to go back. It was hard, but I did it. And I finally, after about six six months or so, they they began to be responses, little weird things that it happened, uh, uh, like uh, the UFO. I, I was communicating with them in my head. I I I, I thought I was anyway, and. I would, you know, I was saying, you know, Anne's not, she's in the middle of this, and she's not even seen a UFO. And this will get back to the sense of humor, by the way. And show her one of your things, because I know you can do that. So a few nights later, we're sitting out in the hot tub. It's winter, and, you know, we're, we're in the hot tub in the winter, and everyone in a hot tub in the winter outside is strategizing about why I should stay in the hot tub and not get out into the cold, even though I've been in here for four hours. Uh, So we're doing, we're there. And all of a sudden we hear this, eh, over the house. And I think, Jesus, it's them. And we look up, I said, Annie, I think it's them. Look at, listen to that noise. And then there moves over the hot tub, what looked like, a gigantic flying pile of logs decorated with Christmas lights going. <laughs> and we're looking up at this thing and she says, you went up in that? I said, I don't know what that is, Anne. She says, well, it better not fall on us. And then it goes off and down a little draw and you can hear it going off up another draw into the woods. So that was Anne's UFO. Pile of logs with
2: Christmas lights on it.
0: What do you think of that? I what mean, do
2: you make of yeah the absurdity that seems to be on purpose? Uh, it was on purpose know.
0: for sure. Yeah,
2: there's so many cases like the, There's a Nobel science, uh, Prize-winning scientist who saw a green raccoon.
0: That was uh, yeah that was uh what was his name? Uh, Carry Mullins. Carry N- Mullins. Oh, he was a good guy. Knew Kerry Mullins, and we talked about his experience. Very much so. And he was, he's, I I said, why do you think it was like that? And he was a very brilliant man. And he didn't say it was their sense of humor. He said, it was what I could see. Oh, interesting. A very, very good answer. You hear that and you think, I understand now why he won a Nobel Prize. It, It was in chemistry, but nevertheless, that was
2: a very good mind. The absurdity that comes along with them. I'm thinking of Kelly Hopkinsville, that famous case where it was like aliens in a shooting gallery. They'd shoot them and they'd pop back up. We just did a story a couple of days ago about an incident in Las Vegas. I don't know if it's real or not, but they said these 10-foot tall aliens got behind the the controls of a a front loader machine and was trying to operate it. That makes no sense. I mean, you know, it seems like these kind of details are thrown into the cases to make them absurd on purpose and hard to believe. I
0: don't think that it, I think it has two purposes. I think it is, one, it keeps the question open and to the witnesses who are there, it tells them that this is something real because it's not something you would just dream up. In other words, it's confirming and also keeps the question open. It does both, they're very, very interested in keeping the question open. That's why things are like they are. That's why it it was me, uh, a horror novelist with a bad reputation as a prankster uh, who ended up doing this instead of Carl Sagan. (laughs) And uh, uh, because I can tell the story, a story well and very accurately, I'm very accurate. I'm a good witness. But you don't have to believe a person with my background, you don't. Right.
1: Let me ask you this, um, I, so I can accept from where I'm standing that there are machines, that they are in our skies. I've seen evidence of this that's so weighty, I can't ignore that or not the luxury of disbelief. I know our is involved, I know that we have what we believe to be recovered vehicles. So I can understand that. I can grasp that conceptually. It's harder for me to grasp things that are so uh, foreign to me. So how do you allow those two worlds to live together, this technological story, uh, maybe physical things that have been told to, or, or you know, through human dialogue? with the things that you're describing, is there a world where those things work, where they fit, where they mesh? Like, how do you mesh those things?
0: Well, if you don't walk the tightrope of question, I mean, you have physical uh, craft on one side, debris, material. I've got some of the material myself in my office. And it's real. Uh, You've got that on one side. Uh, You're gonna have stories about bodies coming out, I would guess, very soon. You have all of that on one side. It's an entirely physical story. Yeah. On the other side, you have this enormous body of testimony that suggests that this is part of the physical world, yes, but not quite in the same way we are because it is freer to move in and out of a more numinous level of reality. If you don't stay on that tightrope between the two things, you fall into belief, one belief that's not big enough or another belief that's not big enough. Because this whole thing, the whole question is this, whatever it is, it has the, it has an expression that is also non-physical in some way. And that may be its origin even, Uh, we don't know that. We don't know if the strange materials are spun out of the mind or sp- technology like we would create or not. I remember uh, uh, Dr. Robert Sauerbacher, who was a metallurgist, who Stanton Friedman introduced me to in 1986 when I was working on communion and really trying to find some evidence of some kind of physical aspect of this. Because... You know, I was injured. I was obviously was a physical experience in some way. And uh, Dr. Sauerbacher talked to me about the metal that they had that they'd gotten from Roswell. And he um, uh, he said um, that the that he that they when the electron microscope came on stream, they could look at it and see that it was a a. a molecular mesh, I think, was the way he described it. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, then, they, they, and, and uh, so there was some real physical stuff on the one hand. On the other hand, I remembered flying up into the air without an elevator. I just rose right up into the thing out of the woods. So you figure all, I mean, you put all those things together, you can't really do it.
2: Sarbacher was a pretty major figure in this field. For our audience who don't recognize him mean, he is a presidential science advisor. He first uh, popped into the UFO world because of quotes that he gave to a researcher that said, yeah, I was invited to take a look at these crashed saucers or whatever, or yeah. covered materials. And it's, uh, I can tell you that it's uh, classified higher than the H-bomb. Pretty famous quote. He was a major guy and you got yeah. to meet him. I Well, I, I met him on the telephone and he... Uh yeah, he,
0: he didn't have a security clearance and he didn't have any confidentialities and nor did he respect that. He didn't understand. He told me, I don't understand why it's so secret. And he told me a lot of things about it, including about the same thing Art Exon would tell me two years later that we had crash disks. Uh, or no, excuse me, my Uncle Mickey told me that we had crash disks. Uh, and, and Art Exon agreed with that. And in any case, uh, they were both at at Wright Field when the debris was brought in. They were both in air material at the time. And so uh, Dr. Sarnbacher was very plain spoken. And he said to me, the last thing he said was, I would like you to sit down and write out everything you remember that happened to you. And so the next day I wrote it all out as I remembered it. And he wanted me to send it to him by, Overnight when we d- overnight was just new then. There was FedEx and UPS Overnight had just started and they had it in my area, but not FedEx. So I used UPS Overnight and they came and picked it up. And um, the next day someone called me from UPS, I guess, it, I think it was the guy who was trying to deliver it and said, I'm sorry, I can't make this delivery the uh, individual that it is addressed to has died. And Dr. Sauerbacher had died. I said, do you know how he died? And the man said, he fell off of his yacht. Uh, The death certificate says natural causes. But that scared me. And, And in communion, you see me referring to him, but not to any details about his death or anything. Because at the time, I was just beginning to realize that there was a heavy duty level of secrecy involved in this and that there were a lot of very unusual people involved. And uh, I was scared. I was, you know, I have a family and I, I had a little boy and a wife and I didn't want us to get tangled up in some awful weird stuff with those kinds of people
1: the the next question like we might learn really soon about a technological reality associated with the ufo phenomenon that feels imminent and that feels like something that can be provable digested and accepted and is likely true but the next question people are going to ask is if that is true and there is some other there's some other that is somehow engaging humanity are all of these other stories or are some of these other stories true what's the intent Are some of these abduction stories true? Is that why there's been some sort of cover-up is because the reality is scarier than people can know right away? So that is a logical question if we learn that the core reality to the physical aspect of UFOs is true. Where does that lead us? What what
0: other questions, what harder questions are gonna need to be asked? I think that the first question that needs to be asked after that question is answered if there, if we have got the answer, there is a physical presence here. If we have bodies, we have biology, we have technology, it's physical presence. Then why is it that so many people who engage with this presence experience it? For example, uh, along with their own dead friends and relatives, what, what is it about the experience are about this presence that is partly physical, that also seems to bleed off into areas of reality that most of us don't even believe exist. Like like life after death. Like life after death, et cetera. Like Annie came out of her office one day and she says to me, Whitley, this has something to do with what we call death. And uh, th- the reason she said that was that letter after letter, not every letter, but a lot of letters, enough For her to notice it as a trend uh, refers to experiences where dead friends and relatives would appear right before, during, or with the visitors. And that happened at our cabin. Not to me, but to other people who came. She, She was very good at, she was really a very strange, just a nice girl from Michigan. I mean, there was nothing when I met Anne that would say that she was anything else. But except, I guess, once we were together, strange things began to happen that were we regarded as quite funny. Uh, But in any case, uh, she she had an ability to to feel who would see the visitors when they came. And, you know, Laurie Barnes, her secretary, had experiences at the cabin, uh, A woman that wrote us letters, uh, Raven Dana, who's still very much with us, had experiences at the cabin. Other people did, too, who haven't come forward yet. A number of other people. But um, uh, Raven uh, and Laurie, no, I guess not Raven. Laurie was one of the ones. She walked into the cabin one evening after taking a walk. And she said, I just saw my brother on the road. And... We didn't know anything about our brother. And so I thought, what's he doing up here? And then she said, he disappeared 20 years ago and the FBI declared him dead. And he was standing there. I tried to get him to come down, but he just said that to tell to, to, he was there to let her know he was all right. And he drifted off into the woods and disappeared before my eyes. And Ann said to me very quietly, a little later, the visitors will be here tonight. And they were. And most of the time when they came, either in the context of their arrival or sometime before there would be someone having a a, a fairly extraordinary experience with the dead. Now, getting back to this question, which has sort of become the theme of our discussion in a way, you have to walk the line because we're going to have physical, we've got the, the physical debris is now real. There'll be attempts to debunk it, I'm sure. I'm sure that there are people in the DOD working overtime to, uh, to discredit David Grush, and I think there's already a story in the Atlantic Monthly about it, and all this bullshit will go on and on and on. But the bottom line is we do have debris and probably intact saucers, devices. Now, how do we go from there to encounters between the living and the dead? we're going to have to do that. But you know, we're capable of this because what you said before that we're going to, we're going to crack the the nut of the materials very quickly, the bodies, the materials, we're going to understand this. And once the question of how they all work is actually out into the public space and, 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 and freed from the, from the very airless world of, of, the, of, of, of the inside where there's just not enough good minds. I mean, there's a lot of good minds in there, but they're not, they're nothing compared to what's on the outside. There's a lot of brilliance out there in the world. And I would say that we will figure out how these things work. Uh, but let me just finish. Sure. But all of that, yes. But then what do we do with this other thing? The dead. They're not even supposed to exist. We live in a secular world now. We don't believe there's anything other than the body. I I don't agree with that. I have definitely aware of the soul, but most people aren't. How do we go there? How do we go down that road? How do we make sense of that? It's a good question, I think.
2: You wrote a book called The Key. Yep. And it's about a series of encounters or at least one major encounter. One encounter you're awake, you're sober, this is not a dream, no. and you have a conversation, or at least a download from a being. That it was a God, conversation. It mentioned about the afterlife.
0: Yeah, right, right. What, yeah. what did he tell you? Well, uh, he talked a lot about a lot of things. Uh, he, he, that, that contextually, I was at the Delta Chelsea Hotel in uh, Toronto. I'll never forget it. I was in room 2545 when it happened. And I... Um, There was, it came a knock on the door and I thought it was the room service waiter because I had a tray on the, you know, I'd eaten in my room. And um, I opened the door and this guy comes rushing in and it's immediately obvious, it's not the room service waiter. And one rule of thumb, if you're a writer or any of you guys, the same rule of thumb, I'm sure. No one who comes to you after midnight is gonna be good news. (laughs) I thought it was earlier, but I realized then it was about two. And so I start trying to get him out. But he was so articulate and said such extraordinary things, it turned into a conversation. And he he talked about the dead and about the fact that they are real and that this is that there is a there is a flow between the living and the dead and that, that what we call the dead And I've always thought to myself, I wonder if they call us the dead, you know? In other words, what we think of as the dead or the living is as far as they're concerned, and we're dead, Um, I don't know. But after my wife passed away years and years ago, when we began to, we were both totally secular. I mean, we were not religious and yet we were getting all these stories and we decided that if there is an afterlife, the one of us that goes first we'll start out by communicating with friends if this is possible. Because if I, you know, uh, uh, if we, we were not the type of people, if I had like seen Ann's ghost or something, I would just assume it was my imagination. So after Annie passed away, that same night, not even two hours later, a friend who did not know she was dead calls up and says, Whitley, is Anne okay? And I said, Belle, no, she's passed on. She just passed on a couple of hours ago. She knew she was sick, of course, all of our friends did. And uh, she said, because I just heard her say very clearly in my ear to call Whitley. And I had been sitting there literally thinking, Annie, if you still exist in any way, for God's sakes, let me know. I'd forgotten about the pack and this happened five or six times over the next week with all kinds of different people all totally unrelated to each other uh totally unrelated to each other and i finally even me always clinging to the 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 skeptical and you know it's a, you know they 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 got the this guy who's just not a believer dragged into this thing and so i'm not getting into a belief mode until finally, I realize it has to be true. She is still here. It couldn't be any other way. And that developed into an ongoing relationship with my wife. And that's yeah. why I wear two rings. Yeah. We're, we're still married, but we're just down to one body <laughs> for the time being.
2: The first time we ever talked it was via satellite in August of nineteen eighty-nine, and you hit me with a quote that I've used many times since then and and uh and I will never forget. You said that the the true architects of the secrecy are the visitors. Yes. You write about that extensively in in them. You you continue right. that you you expanded further saying that the secrecy has been imposed by them on our government, on our military. Right. What do you mean? Well, they haven't imposed it by
0: going to Mr. President or somebody and saying, you keep this right under the cover, under covers. It's been much more indirect and clever than that. They have done things that our military has no choice but to keep secret. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, the Roswell incident was not the first incident. There were other things that happened before then. Specifically, there was probably the Trinity incident, which... Uh, Jacques Vallee and Paula Harris wrote about in Trinity, and but then there were also a number of shootdowns of missiles that we were testing at White Sands, German uh, rockets that we had that we were testing at White Sands, and uh, I go into in them I go into some detail about those shootdowns, and at the time, what would come out in the press was fairly straightforward. Only later did it get covered up, but, th- 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 but you can tell from the reports that th- it probably were shoot downs taking place. And of course the military would have been completely bananas about it internally. Um, but then the Roswell incident occurs and uh, this incident, this object is a f- crashes a few miles from Roswell Army Airfield where the 509th Bomb Wing is, uh, is uh, stationed. Those are the only operational atomic bombers in the world. That is a place that Stalin mo- most wants to know about in the whole world. Because he's got four and a half million soldiers along a line across Central Europe ready to sweep into Western Europe and take the whole thing. And he's not doing that because he's scared those bombers will come over and blow him smithereens like all dictators. He's terrified of his own death. Uh, uh, and he's in Moscow and he is afraid they'll, they'll bomb him. And he's right. They would have. And, and the Russians did not have sufficiently sophisticated uh, countermeasures. Some of those bombers or maybe even all of them would have gotten through. To the, to the heart of the Soviet Union. And he could not respond in any significant way. So it's a stalemate. He's sitting there. Now, word comes from Roswell that debris of a crashed aircraft has been found, I think it was 30 or 40 miles north of uh, the field. And at first, the soldiers are excited because they're more innocent. They don't have the mindset of the upper uh, higher uh, levels and they want to tell the world they found a flying disc and it's Roswell Army Airfield that did it. Hey, we're, you know, we're really cool. And upper levels say this could be a Soviet spy plane and they totally clamp down. Now, in my opinion, the visitors knew damn well what would happen that A, they would reveal themselves, and B, we would the military would keep it secret because they intended from the beginning, and there's a long period of human history in which they were in, injecting themselves into our historical stream at times very carefully. Then after the atomic bomb, they decide, we've got to do something more radical here. And that means that, a a real relationship has to be developed. And this is going to take time and this is going to be hard, but we have to start somewhere and we have to control it. And we're going to let these people know we're here. We're going to let them learn all kinds of things about us. But what we are not going to do is let them tell their public, Because if they tell their public that will be cultural colonization, the whole public mind will turn toward us and uh, we will no longer, they will no longer be developing them on their own. It is an incredibly compassionate and also self-serving thing to do. Uh, And so they keep themselves hidden while under the surface, teaching us all kinds of things about them now when this finally begins to emerge from the hidden world from the inner inner circles it emer- is going to emerge as a an ongoing process of discovery that where it's it's we're not in the dark about a lot of things we're going to be the, the public is going to be brought into this at a time when we already have a certain amount of control over the relationship That's what's happened. And that's, and I think it's, it's happening now because the planet is unstable due to the fact that there's too many human beings on it. My experiences with the visitors is that they're not in the least concerned. They're not pointing fingers at anyone uh, saying, oh, they're not, they're not responding. They're not helping the planet, et cetera. They just say it's, it's, it's population It's overpopulated and therefore it's going to fail. And and they're going to intervene in some way because, you know, they don't want that to happen to us. And I don't blame them. I, don't, I obviously don't want it either. But, uh, uh, and they're doing it very, very carefully. They have, they've got a contingency plan that they have enacted. That's what the abductions were about. What, whatever their outcome was, they have in some way preserved uh, some kind of a, of a, of a record of us and probably other species on the planet in case this fails. But they are going to now try to integrate with us in a way that we don't integrate with anything. And at first it's going to be easy. We're going to say, oh, cool, aliens, finally the government's coming. But then later, the whole issue of the living and the dead and the soul and the body will come more and more into focus. And why my wife, who's, as I've said before, was a very unusual being, decided this book should be called Communion, that book will become more and more evident in the lives of every single human being who's exposed to this. Because it is a much deeper than simply sitting across a table from a funny looking man and finding out his cell phone is really cool. It's much deeper. This is
2: about a new world if we can take it, as Phil Corso said. Communion wasn't just about your experiences. People forget it was, it went into great detail about secret government programs and cover-ups and things of that sort. Them picks up on it and it's up to date to the point where current events, that AIMSOG program that became Arrow, uh, current studies, ATEP, all that, it, it becomes very clear. You mentioned our friend, Dave Grush. The pushback's already happening. The debunking is coming. You know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they do these not only debunking, but prebunking. And you, you know that he's going to get dumped on. The keepers of the secrets do not want this out. No. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Control, power, I don't, because we're worried. Our, we'll let our adversaries know how far along we are. But you think that there's no stopping it? I don't think there's any stopping
0: it. I think the visitors are in control of it. And they're going to do what they're going to do. If it stops, it's because they wanted to stop. If it doesn't, it, and they're not, a co- they're not a cohesive group, I don't think. I think there's a lot of give and take among them and argument and fights, frankly. Uh, I, and so right now, whoever it is who wants this more known is in the ascendancy. And uh, maybe that won't last. I don't know. I think there have been times in the past when they have been and it hasn't lasted. Is there more than one them? Oh, yeah. I know of two that I've interacted with fairly extensively. And to read the literature, the the descriptions from other people, there are many. And um, why wouldn't there be? I mean, if there's only one other intelligent species in this universe, that would be almost as amazing That would be amazing because, I mean, it's so huge. Yeah, I mean, if you think that there are billions of human beings and we feel very common to ourselves, but we are far compared to the number of stars there are in this universe, we are almost so rare that we're a statistical improbability. We're just that rare.
2: I just think of the yeah, there are billions of humans, but there are tens of billions of other earthlings, other species, other animals and things. And
0: yeah uh, and and but in in and in the context of other planets, you're not talking just about a few. You're talking about many, 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 many. I think that I've often thought that we are somehow or another sequestered here, that the reason we haven't seen anybody, are, and don't pick up any signals, is not because they aren't there, because they're not allowed to get through to us. They were, we're in a state of development of some kind. And maybe the next stage of this development is going to be when we, the what is for us a wall between the worlds of the living and the worlds of the dead ceases to exist. And we become much more like the visitors I'll tell you a story, and it's from one of Kathleen Marden's books. Uh, Kathleen is a, has done abduction research for many years, and she's a prominent member of MUFON, or was, anyway. She may have retired from that by now. In any case, he tells a story of a man who had a little private airport, and he, would, uh, he saw a UFO land at, the, at the, uh, uh, on one of his runways. So he starts putting out lights and things and trying to attract them. And they do come back. But one night, he hears a noise down in his hangar. He's, it's a small operation. and He lives in an apartment that's connected to the hangar. And he looks down in there and he sees these little fel- figures walking around in there and scares the hell out of him. I mean, why would it scare him? I mean, he's he's invited it, right? You would think. But he, he in any case gets himself a shotgun and um, he wakes up the next night and there's one of them standing in his room and he shoots it and it blows it all to hell um, into this yellow goo that promptly disappears. I believe that's the story. In any case, he then is haunted by this thing that's now a ghost. And it's hostile, and it's furious at him, and it's haunting him. And he goes mad and dies. Uh, Now, am I telling you a story about something that lives comfortably in two levels of reality at the same time? One of which we are familiar with, and one of which we are not. And he, he accidentally basically blew out its body, it leaving only its non-physical portion. And maybe, maybe in their world you have to pay pay a lot of money to have a body like we do a car or something. And it was pissed off at him. Who knows? But you know, there's there's every reason we would we would think that story is nonsense. I can only say this. What if it's not? If it's not then we've got a very, very extraordinary road to travel over the next few
2: years. You co-wrote a book with Art Bell, the late Art Bell, our, our friend. Yeah. Um, warning about cataclysms to come. Mm. And it seemed like that was ahead of its time in that global climate change is here. I, I wonder, you know, we've, we've heard the visitors, wherever they're from, deliver these alien editorials to, to people dating back to the 50s, maybe long ago, m- longer than that take care of your planet, quit messing around with nuclear weapons, warnings that we have obviously not heeded. Um, I wonder if they've, in in essence, given up on us uh, in that regard, that they know that something is coming, that it's about to hit the fan. Uh, Would they ever intervene uh, in a direct way to to help us or or have they intervened just by trying to tell us to amend our ways? Is that as far as they Um, go?
0: Well, I have really been back and forth with them about this. And I, I wish I could say that I could, I've asked them about this, I should say. Uh, I've asked them, why don't you just appear for five minutes in an incontrovertible way on, in some way, you know, on a big international video, you know, on a, on the, on you know on a camera crew, in front of a camera, a professional camera crew from a big news organization like the BBC or CBS or something. Or they could, they could come on weaponized. Yeah. It's, it's okay. totally cool with me. Exactly. Totally cool. No, no, I mean, they'll walk into the Super Bowl. There's a million things they could do easily. and Because the second they did that, then that message that has been left among the close encounter witnesses would be amplified instantly. And those people would all come forward saying, this is why they're here. And it would be, it would empower them, but they don't do it. And there are, I think that it's basically, gets back to that Phil Corso statement. A new, they said, they told him what was on offer for us, from us, for us was a new world. If you can take it, the emphasis is very definitely on the you, us. We have to do this ourselves. And if we're not strong enough, I think ultimately they'll just go away. Oh, really, you think they'd just leave or something like this? Uh, it's, it seems like
1: if this, any of this is true, there's an investment in, first of all, don't give them my number. Second of all, there seems to be an investment, right? If this is really happening, this yeah. is a long-term thing.
0: Now, if they would, if, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that if there's a nuclear exchange or something like that, they will act. Or if there is, a, if we begin to die in mass numbers because of the fact that the planet has failed, they will come. I don't know that that is going to happen. I think that they have a lot of ways, perhaps, of uh, affecting the planet's environment, and maybe even ways of of affecting our our ability to use nuclear weapons. But the degree to which they will act, I just can't be sure. I, you know, if they, if if they have to, uh, if they have to con- control us, what are we worth to them? I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe not a, not enough to justify the effort it would be, because ultimately it would be an effort in the physical world. They would have to do something physical to force us to, to come to heal. And, you know, if we were going to get into a nuclear conflict or uh, they, they, are, they might, I think if they were going to
2: force us to do something to save this planet, they would have done that already. Do they consider this to be home? Um, You know, they've interacted with humans as long as we've been here. They've been around a long time. Yeah. Maybe they live here in some other dimension or something, but did they have any sense that they've conveyed to you that they consider this to be their home too?
0: I, I can't say yes or no. I, I don't recall anything except this. Uh, they came up out of the ground at our cabin a lot. And, you know, why we knew that is because they would smell like the forest floor, which is very pungent. And they would smell like something that had just come out of the ground. And uh, not always, but some of them certainly did. And, you know, there's this thing going on in Peru, weird business where they are finding these mummies that are so far not adding up. They're not hoaxes and they're not people. And they are, it's, it's, it's a story that is either going to go away or break. It's hard to know which is going to happen. But they've got over a hundred of them now. And th- there are problems with it because they they come from a man who is secretive about where they come from and He's trying to sell them and it makes it look like a hoax. And yet there's so many of them that and, and there's been some fairly significant work done on them. Um, MRI scans and things that one of them shows, for example, uh, in its eggs, in its uterus. And, you know, I don't think that any hoaxer is going to come up with that. And uh, so what I'm saying here is this could be something to do with Earth. They could be an earthly species that we just have not that has been very careful to avoid contact with us because they live underground.
2: You know the Navajo, the uh, the Hopi, uh, other Native American tribes all believe that they came their ancestors came out of the ground or underground yeah, into this yeah, world. the
0: gorilla Apaches do too. Uh, the same thing that they came out of the Archuleta Mesa, which is a place where. There's a lot of UFO legends about that Mesa, in fact. Um, so it, it could be that they are from here. They even could be physically from here.
2: I don't know if you, you don't own the cabin anymore or whether you keep up with what goes on there, but I wonder if the, the activity continues or that it, it happened because you were there.
0: Uh, I know the answer to that question. It happened because I was there and... I do know the couple who owns the cabin now and they're extremely sweet people and the cabin is in good hands, I'm happy to say. And I went there uh, for a documentary for um, the Travel Channel uh, and uh, that was shown about a year ago, I believe six months ago. And um, I, uh, I went back to the cabin. I thought I would never go back to the cabin and I finally did. It was a very moving experience and i found that they had kept the stone circle and they were very into my work and they had a little room in the basement the whitley room with all kinds of things in it it oh. was very cool and they're an extremely nice couple and i'm going back there i'm going to be back there in august for a week all by myself and was some company <laughs> Well, I don't know. There's a lot of people who have had visitor experiences because they were near me. and uh, Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So if, if this is, you know, happening to certain people
1: and not to others, it's, it's not the most common story you hear every day, right? So if it is that it's somehow connected to certain people, I wanted to ask you that. Have other people had their first sighting of a UFO or something like that, or these other stranger experiences, in my mind, stranger, because they're with you? Has that happened a lot? It's happened a fair amount,
0: yeah. Yeah. It happened up at the Esselin Institute a number of times that people, you know, they, they figured out put me in this. In, they have these conferences there, these private conferences, and I would be occasionally invited to one. I was at your, you were, were at yeah, that conference. Right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that was not one in which anyone was in the room with me. It, 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 but uh, at other times, when they, I'm, there's a particular room that overlooks the Pacific, and it's a very easy coming and going, and once Jeff Kreipl. Uh, the author uh, and the, and the uh, one of the leading guys at Esalen was there in the room and he had an experience uh, with me in the room. And I think there might've been someone else uh, because when the visitors come to me and they they were coming to me to wake me up at three o'clock in the morning every single night at that time. They're not doing that now. That I get up anyway, but... Uh, so rude. Why are they waking <laughs> you up? I can explain that very clearly, but... Uh, uh, if you want me to, the, the reason is that I wondered that myself when it started to happen after Annie passed away. And it happened briefly at the cabin and back in the late 90s, just before we lost it. But then after Annie passed away, it started to happen constantly. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, I, I'm, I really would like to get a nice night's sleep. But then I discovered something, that there is a tradition in the yoga yoga practice in India called Brahma Muhartha time. And that is the time an hour and a half approximately before sunrise when uh, the mind is most open to new things. And they were waking me up to get me to go into a meditative state to take my mind off of my thoughts and put it onto the sensation of the body. And I found that an absolute wealth of stuff would come. That way, I wrote afterlife revolution, a new world, Jesus, a new vision, and them all using this time period as my source of inspiration. And uh, uh, so that's why the 3 a.m. call comes.
1: So that they're he- in your mind, it's like they're helping you to get this information.
0: Out. Yeah, I think so. It's not downloads exactly at all. I mean, I'm not like a psychic or a channeler in any way. (coughs) Uh, But I get good ideas and they come at that time.
2: I think my life would be complete if Christopher Walken played me in a movie as he did, played Whitley in the movie Communion. You had problems with that movie uh, here and there, though. My
0: main problem with the movie is they ran out of money and their special effects are very primitive. Uh, I think that... Chris's portrayal of me is rather annoying, but not entirely untrue. Uh, it was awesome. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: uh, no, I'm a, I'm a very jokey kind of guy. I mean, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a solemn, I'm not solemn at all. I try to be solemn. I, you know, I'm, I've got all this spiritual stuff going on in my life and I'm, you know, I want to be, you know, solemn but I'm not solemn. (laughs) You're you're a blast
1: to be around, man. I really really appreciate kind of getting to hear directly from you. You know, I know about you, George knows you, but just seeing the way that your uh, kind of presence has influenced so many people and, and so much of popular culture and our understanding or misunderstanding of this topic. We don't know. You're telling yeah. us, we don't know. But the fact you've had that influence, um, man, it's a, it is a real pleasure to be able to, oh, to well, hang out you. with you. I really appreciate well,
0: it. Good. Yeah, And I'm glad. I, I want it to be a pleasure to hang out with me because I like to hang I'm out pretty with you. F- I'm pretty fun too. We're going to have a couple beers tonight. It'll be good.
2: Uh, yeah. Them... So tell our audience one last time about what's in here that they would not have known, say, from you reading Communion or the other books.
0: OK, uh, well, first, the first half of the book is an analysis of 11 different experiences that are from other people. Some of them are uh, were from the Communion letters and some of them were new. uh, But the difference between this book and everything that's gone before is I have a really, at this point, maybe the deepest understanding there is of this subject. And it is reflected in the analysis of those stories. And there's nothing like it in the world. Nothing has ever been done like that. Uh, And maybe the 3 a.m. part of it had a lot to do with that the second half of the book is delving into the secret side of it into why the military ended up shooting at the visitors we didn't talk about this but the other thing they did besides it, it, showing up at places where it, it requiring a, absolute secrecy the other thing that they did was that they provoked the military by continually going into restricted airspace and ignoring them to the point that they would start to put up combat air patrols. And I go into all of that. Then I go into the brain and how the brain functions and how it, it, and how, how different brains function. For example, uh, the human brain and the dolphin brain. We live on the same planet. We know everything there is to know about the anatomy of the dolphin. We don't know really a thing about what they're saying to each other in those marvelous communications that all the cetaceans make. We don't know anything about that at all. We can get them to, we can train them to do things for us in our context. We cannot understand anything about their mind. Now, you you add to that evolution in a different planetary environment, perhaps with a brain that is fundamentally differently structured from every brain on this planet. And you're going to have a fantastic communications issue. And how to get around that and how to work with that is a big part also of the second part of the book.
2: Yeah, it does sort of look, it looks through the eyes of aliens, visitors, at us.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because I can do that. Now, I've done, I've been doing this for a long time, and I have really have in, I actually am in contact with them. It's real. It's real. And it's efficient. And I'm not a fantasist. I don't have a beautiful alien mistress or anything like that. I'm doing this as accurately and as much in the context of Western thought as is possible.
2: Well, we need to understand them, um, whether they display themselves in some mass way or not. We, we need to understand that. We need to he- heed what they've been telling us for a long time, too. So. Yeah,
0: and we, do, we need to understand also that we can do this. They would not be here if we can't, couldn't do this. I've, I've known them long enough to know that they're the cheapest bastards in the world. They're not going to spend a second on anyone that they can't get the result they, they are looking for from. No way. And they are here. So therefore, they do expect to succeed. You would not consider them your friends? I wouldn't consider them my friends. I'm not sentimental about them at all. I would consider them a very useful presence in my life, and I'm glad they're here. But uh, I definitely, every, anytime I get a chance, I'm going to cut the cards myself.
2: I hope people will check out them. And uh, it's a great new book. Whitley, it's great to see you.
1: Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for sharing your time, man. See you.
0: Never have so few had so much to tell, but could say so little.
1: Following this in the weaponized presentation of Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, Dark Horse Entertainment, and Cadence 13 Studios, available now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.